This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is Kieran McGrath. I'm the CFO at Avaya, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 657. So we're, we've just closed our Series D. That means that we're hiring. Uh, and so building a strong, diverse, well-connected team is definitely number one priority. That is the foundation for our like next two pillars, which are essentially top-line growth and EBITDA. The top-line growth means growing our core business. EBITDA is about you know our ability to control our own destiny. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak with Yevgenia Fink, CFO of Hover, an application that helps users design and estimate home improvement and construction projects. It was near the end of her nine years with Intel Corporation when Yev Fink received a bit of advice she today credits with helping her to blaze a path that would ultimately lead to the CFO office at Hover. Leave Intel before you forget how to open an Excel spreadsheet, was the brief but memorable comment a manager shared with Yev. A manager she respected. There was little question Yev's influence at Intel had steadily grown as she found herself managing more people over time. Still, she felt her finance skill set was no longer being challenged the way it once was, leading her to close one chapter to open another one. Yev Fink shares that story and much more after this. In a world that's always changing, one thing never does. Your need to adapt, your need to evolve, your need to grow. That's why we built Workday, a single finance, HR, and planning system that can change as your needs change and evolve as the world evolves. To learn how Workday is helping mid-sized organizations embrace the future with confidence, visit us at Workday.com. Hi, it's Jack. I'm about to press the play button on our talk with CFO Yev Fink. Uh, but before we get started, I have a quick host memo for you. Our CFO yearbook 2021 has just arrived on Amazon. And now this is our annual guide where we write up our last 100 episodes featuring 100 different CFOs. Think of it as a companion to the show. You can now fold a corner down on the page profiling the CFO you're most intrigued by. Every profile has a corresponding QR code allowing you to instantly summon up the podcast episode right from your smartphone. It makes a wonderful holiday gift for finance career builders of every rank. You can find it on Amazon or visit our show store at cfothoughtleader.com. And with that, I press the play button. Hello, we're speaking with Eugenia Fink, CFO of Hover. Yev, welcome. Thank you. Hi, Jack. Good to have you with us, Yev. We'd like to begin, as you might know, by asking each of our guests to look back for us and share with us some of those experiences they feel prepared them for a finance leadership role. What comes to mind for you? Thanks, Jack. And it's really great to be here. Um, the experience that probably shaped me the most as a finance leader were the nine years that I spent at Intel, um, where um, finance as an organization within Intel acts as an embedded function within the business. So the finance, it's not pure FP&A function, uh, but the finance um, folks are attached across different business units and act as a, a, a consultant, as a business consultant to the organization. Probably the best role I had at Intel goes back before I became a manager, um, where 
I was a pricing analyst helping the company shape its pricing strategy. And at the time, this was late 90s to 2000, we were in the middle of a price war with AMD. Um, and also in a race towards uh, getting to a two gigahertz processor, I'm really dating myself here. Um, the projects that I was a part of within that organization, initially as a pricing analyst, eventually as a revenue manager, PL uh, manager, the projects themselves were so fun and engaging that it, it felt like I was doing a Harvard case study every week, right? And so it went from anything from pricing strategy to supporting analysis for what eventually became a key design win for Intel when Apple transitioned from you know, IBM PowerPC processor to Intel architecture. And I would participate in these discussions and contribute to the analysis. And then you would see that strategy you know, unfold both across the Wall Street Journal, um, as well as kind of seeing it play out in retail and across business demand. So it's truly exhilarating. And I think that's where my career probably doesn't match perfectly your typical CFO progression, where typically you would see an MBA on somebody's resume. I don't have an MBA. Uh, at the time that my colleagues were uh, going back to school um, to get an MBA, I um, was still so engaged by the work that I was doing at Intel that I, um, after doing a cost-reward cost analysis, uh, I decided to continue to advance across various roles within uh, into finance, and that was basically my my financial education. I also have a had a, a tremendous opportunity to graduate from Carnegie Mellon University, which that's an exceptional job, kind of preparing the future leaders across all business disciplines. So I definitely had a very strong foundation there. I wanted to ask just at Intel. I know part of your title was. Senior CPU pricing analyst. And I imagine there were all different areas of the business that you could have been involved with pricing. But is that the actual central processing unit, the pricing of the chips? Or can you can you help us understand better what you were involved with? Yeah, back in the day, it started with a pricing of the actual CPU. And then over time evolved into a pricing of the entire platform when you're looking at the CPU itself and other semiconductors that are going on the motherboard and, and act as a system uh, for, for a PC. And so all of a sudden you have dependency on um, what kind of chipset and what kind of network communications chip goes on the platform. And so you have to price all of those components in a holistic manner. Um, it's the actual analysis um, and what it meant to be a pricing analyst is uh, was highly uh, quantitative, right? You actually build a demand model and you, you build um, different price elasticity model, depending on the segment, whether it's a retail segment or a, or a business customer. And you, um, you are challenged to balance just the quantitative with what's really happening in the business. And the best thing about Intel, it's fundamentally, it's a manufacturing company. And I, that's what brought me to Intel straight out of school. I looked at consulting careers and I looked at investment banking careers and none of them really spoke to me. I wanted to be part of an organization that built something in the real world. And so you, what that means is you have to deal with inventory, right? And so you may have a beautiful pricing model that says, you know, here's what you need to do to price this particular chip with the speed the chipset in a certain way, but you also have to then balance out the, the need of being able to um, sell through the inventory that you've built and manage through um, uncertainty in terms of uh, uh, manufacturing output. You don't know what, you don't know with perfect precision what the distribution of, you know, at that time speed mattered. Now it's a little bit more complex, but at that time it's like, well, how many processors are we going to get from this? 
line that are going to be 2 gigahertz, 1.8 gigahertz, 1.6 gigahertz. And so you have to price it out in a way that fits the demand curve, but also in a way that uh, efficiently sells through the, the, uh, the production capacity. Now, you, you mentioned up front how finance is really embedded at Intel. And uh, I'd be curious to know when you're pricing something out, who is part of that discussion and uh, who's around the table? So if you wouldn't mind, if, if we're entering the conference room, who, who exactly would be seated around the table when you're, when you're pricing it out? Yeah, it's a really good, uh, good point. So at the table as a CEO at that time was Paul, Paul Odellini, um, who maintained control over pricing decisions throughout his career. Um, and he, I remember him, uh, there, was a, there was a pitch at some point when we said, do you maybe wanna delegate this pricing responsibility to somebody else? And he said, no, I've waited so many years to get the keys to this from Craig Barrett. There's no way I give up this uh, responsibility. And it really speaks to um, how important um, the pricing strategy is to a future of any organization. The re one of the reasons that th that role and that time at Intel was so important to me is um, it was a, a central organization that was fundamentally a marketing function that I was uh, supporting. Um, and it, at that time it was called microprocessor marketing and business planning. It's what these days people will call biz ops, right? Strategic marketing, strategic planning. There's all these words for this function, but it, uh, essentially was Switzerland within the organization. And so um, it had um, quantitative marketing professionals. It had um, an organization that was working with supply chain with the technology manufacturing group in the room whenever we we're making any pricing decision that the GM of the marketing team, the sales and marketing organization was there, CRO because whatever pricing strategy we were going to be putting in place, his organization was going to be the one that was actually going to be interacting with the customers uh, and, and, and getting the design wins. It's funny because there was a very large exodus of finance people into the operations. And then we talked a lot about that as a finance organization of how do we retain finance people within finance, as opposed to having them go to what we called operations. And fundamentally, I think what sets the um, Intel finance leadership aside from other finance organizations, especially of that size, is I was never looked upon negatively, right? We did not train, we didn't uh, nurture finance people to stay in their finance sandbox. So it was very much encouraged to always push beyond, get the influence, have a strategic impact on the business. But also if people then wanted to go and pursue these, you know, marketing uh, uh, opportunities, the revenue sales opportunities. I mean, if you look at uh, Stacy Smith, who was the CFO, right, as I was leaving, you know, he came from finance and he went to actually run the sales organization and then he, he became a CFO. There was a realization that you needed for to be a really good finance professional, you need to be well-rounded across all disciplines. And so it wasn't hoarding our employees and keeping them in our finance box, but really about providing people with growth opportunities that they had at the organization the size of Intel. So what's interesting, uh, you had already mentioned you were at Intel 10 years, um, quite a block of time. And what I think is also surprising though, it, it seems to me, I would characterize it as when the, the next door swings open, you're headed down an entrepreneurial path for a number of years, which is kind of surprising, and, or maybe not. Uh, you are in, you're out there in Santa Clara, I think. You're surrounded by so many startups. Maybe you were intrigued for many years, uh, but I'll let you explain to us when it came time to uh, for that next chapter, why you, you chose the path you did. Uh, but please share with us what, what happened next. And I promise not to interrupt. <laughs> uh, no, no, no problem. Um, so it actually happened while I was at Intel. I had this uh, manager, um, Dan Bennett, who gave me an advice that uh, has served me quite well, which was 
um, leave Intel before you forget how to open an Excel spreadsheet. Um, and probably my last year and a half, and I was only there for nine years, only one sabbatical, although I ended up hiking through Nepal. Um, in my uh, last year and a half, I, had a, I was managing a pretty large organization. I was supporting a mobile platform team with a very charismatic GM. Um, felt like I had a lot of influence, but a, most of my function became managing people and leading people. And I still didn't feel confident enough in my own skill set as, uh, as in my pure finance skill set. And so I uh, joined a small startup. This was 2007. I joined a, a small startup that was pioneering personalized integrated marketing programs, which now everybody's doing, but at that time was really kind of on the forefront um, of that industry. And part of their product was um, highly customized direct mail campaigns. So we were actually utilizing what at that time were new digital indigo presses from HP. Um, this is commercial grade printers. Um, and, and we were creating print materials that were so um, custom, customized to the customer messaging that it would, as part of an integrated campaign with email, with personalized URLs, uh, with email, with uh, the print was creating better um, results for the, the marketing organizations, major brands like AT&T, like Nike. Um, but it also meant that I was not only leading finance, but I was also leading print operations. So again, a little bit of a theme of kind of manufacturing. Um, and that meant I had to become an expert in all things printing, going on press checks, that smell of ink will probably never <laughs> be forgotten by me, but um, also meant learning about US Postal Service, their sorting, their pricing offerings, um, managing internal operations like HR accounting, eventually project management. So that, and you know, we sold the company to R. Donnelly and by financial measure, it was not a successful exit. Kind of, we stumbled um, during the housing crisis um, and a lot of marketing budgets dried up and we had a bit of um, concentration um, of revenue issue to a major um, communications provider. Um, and, uh, you know, but it, so th that was not, a very on a very positive note, not a really good ending for the investors. But the good news is that the employees, most of the employees actually kept their jobs. Very important for me. Uh, and then I, that's how I caught the company, the small company uh, bug. Um, and then since then, been at several startups. Um, also had an amazing opportunity to work with uh, at that time was a small cap gaming company, Glue Mobile, now over a billion dollar valuation. But that experience gave me an exposure of what it takes to be a public company at a much more intimate scale than Intel could have ever given me. Well, right now, uh, we're going to stop here. We might have a few more questions regarding your career, which we'll ask during the mentoring round. But right now, we'd like to find out about Hover. What does this company do? And what are the what are its offerings exactly? So Hover is a technology platform. Uh, sits at the intersection of insure tech, construct, construction tech, and home improvement industries. So our platform uses computer vision and machine learning technology that takes photos of any structure that are captured via smartphone, and we turn these photos into a fully interactive. 3D model with accurate measurements. And so I've just hovered my friend's house uh, this weekend, walked around the house, took eight photos, and Hover platform returned a 3D model that allowed us to see what different roofing, siding, windows, uh, components would look like on their home, as well as gave us accurate measurements of all of the architectural segments that are on the home exterior. The, um, there are two major competitors in the market that we're serving. 
The one is aerial CAD. So this is companies that generate measurements data from aerial imagery. Um, several disadvantages to a finance person, probably the most obvious one is a high capital cost, right? You need to fly a plane to, um, to capture the property. And then the second one is even when you capture aerial imagery, you don't always have a good line of sight to what we call elevations, right? So walls, openings, windows, doors, et cetera. You may not be able to capture that from the plane. So you don't get the same level of data fidelity that you would have from ground imagery. Um, the second largest competitor is measuring tape, right? And, uh, and this one is a lot easier to overcome. It takes a lot of time and time is money. So when you, while you can have all the measurements, even if, if you climb on the roof, if you're that adventurous, you still don't know what the final product would look like. And this is where Hover uh, platform is really unique for the homeowner and, and the value proposition to the homeowner of being able to visualize that, that what that final project is going to look like. Um, we've just closed series D, all closed during COVID remotely uh, via Zoom. And that the last series D is led by top insurance carriers. So this is Travelers, State Farm Nationwide, and that's truly demonstrating our growing foothold in the insurance industry. Whereas, you know, last year we were primarily servicing contractors. Now you've been there about a little more than three years, I believe. Uh, and I always like to ask this question uh, for CFOs who have a little block of time behind them. What did you need to do to begin moving your team in the direction you wanted upon your arrival? And did you reorganize finance? It, yeah, it's three and a half years, and it was the earliest I've ever joined a company. Um, and and I think a part of it is I had met AJ at Intel. Um, so we kind of go a ways back. AJ is the CEO. And so when I raised the company, when I joined the company, we raised Series B in our first year. Um, so probably one of the most fortunate things um, that I had going for me in that first year is that the head of HR at Hipmunk, which was a startup I was at prior to Hover, um, was, was agreed to join Hover with me. And so that meant that we together built out the full GNA suite from scratch. Um, she took on HR and office uh, and, and kind, of, kind of operationally stabilized um, how we were running, how we were scaling in the organization. And then I focused on uh, financial modeling and getting the company ready for due diligence, right? So being able to uh, get through uh, a GB, you know, a due diligence round that's led by GB was uh, uh, definitely a step up from where we were. So now, um, you know, since then we've grown, uh, we've grown the organization across the board. The accounting function is uh, fully built out and we're continuing to scale it to support the business. Uh, and uh, I'm building out the, uh, the FP&A organization um, and, uh, and, and then the other kind of people functions, IT, legal, um, all of that is kind of in full swing. Okay. I want to touch on FP&A with you, but you mentioned you had met, uh, AJ, uh, in your past at Intel. Was this someone you had worked with on, on certain pricing or is this, uh, was it less structured than that? Uh, it's so funny. I, I remember arguing about something on the roadmap in his cubicle, and that's like the, the extent. Uh, I don't remember exactly which projects we had worked with together, but um, I definitely remember having debates about specific company strategies uh, that we were undertaking at that time, and that debate continues here at Hover as well. Okay, so with him, him personally... Who, he was an engineer then, is that right? Though I just want to make the distinction here again, uh, your exposure to other parts of the Intel organization. Um, he's an engineer. He's an engineer by training. And that's one of the things that I think, again, Intel has done really well was putting engineers in these strategic marketing roles um, and really building a very diverse function. Um, 
FPNA, you had a, a tour duty of building. You've you've built FPNA teams p- before. I, I see you you have an FPNA title uh, among your titles in the past. Can you tell us a little something about when it came time to uh, begin building the team? And again, I, I suspect it might only be a you know a handful or some expertise that you've brought in recently. Yes. So the, um, the, the most important part of a finance function is uh, to be a solid business partner and to be able to lead the planning process with integrity and discipline um, and also to resist the urge to become a cop within an organization and really build a culture of fiscal discipline within an organization. So I always tell people like not interested in writing long, uh, you know, policies around spending controls and uh, and what to do and what not to do. Right? Uh, it's about um, it, it's about setting a specific direction for for me a big part of that is building a profitable business as a direction for the organization and then um, having people rally around that as a cause and become the business partners and drivers of that cost so that when i look across my team um, the executive team i don't own the pnl we all own the PL as a team. Everybody owns one aspect of it, and fundamentally, we're all in the in, we're all building this organization and building the business together. Um, and I'm very sensitive to to not just focus my relationship as a CFO to that of with a CEO to make it be a lot broader than that. And that goes for my role here and kind of all the way down the organization for, you know, VP of finance, for a controller, right? It's, it's the ability to look across the organization and, and build, build a team that is achieving results as opposed to kind of relying on personal heroics. Okay. Well, we're wondering what it is that you as the CFO are trying to measure. And I imagine it's you're you're looking into the sales pipeline, uh, but there are other business dynamics perhaps as well that you're paying close attention to. One of which is cash, no doubt. But uh, what are what are the dynamics you're, you're seeking to expose and measure these days? Yes, it's 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 really good. We're always focused on cash. Um, we're always focused fundamentally. We're focused on revenue and EBITDA, profitability. The metrics of the business um, are somewhat tied to the the current nature of the business. So we're still largely transactional business. Um, That means that every time a contractor or uh, an insurance carrier or an independent adjusting firm wants to use our product, they have to pay transactionally for every model that they're generating. Um, And the important part there is to be able to measure the business and how it acts in a way that you would expect a SaaS company to perform. So what does that mean? Well, if every time somebody has to do a hover and they're pulling out a a, a wallet, that's essentially them saying your product is so great that I'm willing to pay for it over and over and over again. And that means that we look at the data, we look at our customer base and we look at them by cohort and we look at them by size, but essentially what we're measuring is, are the retention rates there? Is the use increasing on per customer basis? Are we able to to grow the penetration of um, within the market that we're trying to address? And at the same time, we're bringing new features to the platform and those features and capabilities are allowing us to expand our product offering and actually move closer to a SaaS. So we now have a SaaS offering and we're shifting our client customer base towards a more predictable SaaS metrics um, versus a transactional metrics. But even in the transactional space, a lot of our business is still 
working in the same way as SaaS. It's a high margin business, right? It's a unit economics matter. Um, the retention rates are great. We have a negative churn among our customers. And those are all the things that we're measuring. <laughs> all right. Uh, how far along are you on that uh, journey from into the SaaS world, would you say? Are you halfway there in terms of your the percentage of business or how do you look at it? Um, we're not halfway there yet. Um, I'm looking at it in terms of uh, new capabilities that we're unlocking. And so what is uh, what the SaaS business really means to us is that we're able to move away from measurements for money and into being an e-commerce platform for exterior home improvement materials, for uh, a marketplace for the homeowner and the contractor um, of for being the platform that the contractors use to scale their business. So that's what that's what I'm looking at. And I think we're more than halfway there in terms of building those capabilities. And you did mention you've raised money during uh, the pandemic. Uh, so business uh, goes on. Uh, but but uh, just the nature of the opportunity you're pursuing, has it been in any way diminished or affected by uh, the pandemic? Yeah. So I think that there are, there are a couple of aspects to it, to the pandemic and its effect on Hover. The first one is obviously the customer. We um, we have two customer segments that we, uh, that, uh, we address. One is uh, restoration. So restoration is any storm damage, you, uh, tree fell on your house, you drove your car into the side of your house by accident. Uh, that's, um, um, th that's one market. And that market tends to be recession proof, right? Hail damage happens no matter if there's global pandemic or not. Um, but there's a retail segment, right? So my roof is too old. Um, I, um, I need to beautify this home, but I can wait because I don't have a job. Um, and that that segment is uh, going to be much more vulnerable towards the the impact of the pandemic. So it, the, you know, we shut down in March. We definitely saw a weakening in demand in the first couple of weeks. Uh, and, but what we have seen since is we've actually seen an acceleration in adoption of our technology. And the reason for it is that the platform itself and its essence, right, it allows for remote selling. So you don't need the guy to come up to your house with a clipboard and walk around and take measurements, right? They can now be able to, the contractor can help you visualize the project, can offer credibility behind the quote that you're receiving, and the carrier is able to adjust your claim remotely, which is really important. They no longer need to send an adjuster out to your property because they're getting images, real-time images of damage and accurate measurements of the, the work that needs to be done on your home. So in many ways, you know, the uh, pandemic actually accelerated the adoption of our technology over the last few months. And internally, the dynamics were definitely different. We um, we shut down a, we shut down the company a couple of days before the city of San Francisco has shut down, um, and we've been following their recommendations since. Um, and initially, we made a pretty seamless transition to working from home. Um, but what's interesting is that prior to COVID, when we were looking at our people goals for 2020 we selected this theme of being connected as a major area. And the reason for that is we had just gone from being 100 employees to 200 employees. And I was joking with like, yeah, we're 200 employees, but we're still kind of learning how to op really operate as a 200 employee company. And you know, there's that magic number of 150 people in the organization that the book Sapiens talks about. That's like the sweet spot. And once you go to 200 employees, like dynamic, everything changes. Um, and so that's why we were so focused on the themes of connectedness and belonging before the pandemics hit. And then, you know, and then we were all remote. Um, and I would say we had a very strong in-office culture. And frankly, the novelty of working from home wore off pretty quickly for us. 
Um, so we had to double down on our efforts of being a well-connected team. And we built very strong framework for how, you know, how, how, to, how to do this effectively and how to do this in this completely unprecedented environment. And for us at the very center of it was this uh, concept of individual wellness and self-care. Um, so that you know, the HR organization is kind of within the scope of the CFO role for me. So that meant we offered an enhanced benefit. So we included exercise programs, meditation, mental health offerings. We've also committed to offering our employees a mandatory fun day. Like that's a, that's a uh, military term, but it's a mental health day where we take one Friday at least once a month and we give people a three-day weekend. And the distinction there is that Friday, um, you know, this aside from customer support and the Dev DevOps team, right? People whose roles are really critical, we can all take a breather, right? We have unlimited PTO, but you know, when, when you go on PTO, you come back and the work piles up. When the entire company takes a day, a pause, and gives people time to recharge and spend time with their family, that has a huge positive impact to kind of overall energy and culture. The other thing that we did um, was a doubling down on internal communication, right? So that meant, uh, whereas our old company meetings prior to COVID were every two weeks, we now went to a very um, structured weekly update to the company. We're, we're big on transparency, lots of transparency on how the business is going, how other teams across the organizations are doing. And then we double down on our biannual hackathons, right? Like the COVID, no COVID, we're still committed to like culture of innovation. Um, and then the, the last thing that we did was really invested in um, the, uh, in, in trying to give our employees time and space to connect. And so at first, we were doing, as I'm, I think a lot of companies were doing, um, you know, Friday happy hour via Zoom, and that gets old very fast. Um, there's only so long you can sit in front of a Zoom with a beverage and look at it, all of these boxes. And so we've now shifted our strategy away from these like old company events. We're still doing them, but we're much using them much more sparingly, and the people team is more. Um, focused on organizing small team-specific events that many virtual. We've also done, we do um, something called hover huddles where we randomly select four people and schedule a half an hour meeting on their calendar. And, and they opt in, obviously, we're not going to steal time from you without your permission, but it gives, um, it, it, what it does for us, it is simulates the in-office environment, right? You're, you're grabbing a cup of coffee, and there's a guy who is like reaching for, you know, uh, coffee beans right next to you and you strike a conversation. How are you doing? Where are you coming from? I haven't seen you before. What team are you on? That's very hard to replicate in a virtual environment, but it's those kinds of interactions that build the human connection that we all need. And I, you know, we, we still are looking forward to being back in the office. We're not committing to all virtual. I'm, I'm always joking with my team, like, if people didn't need people, COVID wouldn't spread as much as it spreads. And so we are very much committed to rebuilding and nurturing that in-person culture when it's safe to do so. Well, some nice insight into your mindset there. Um, we always like to ask for a finance strategic moment, which is uh, could have happened anytime during the course of your career, but it's where you had a moment of strategic insight due to your role as a finance executive. So you saw something in the numbers that revealed a trend, an opportunity, a risk, whatever it may have been. Does anything come to mind when we ask for a finance strategic moment? Yeah, and, and for me, it's not about the numbers because when I look back to my career and, and, and I just received this, the CFO promotion was pretty recent in March, um, to me, it's this distinction of going from being a, 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 a VP of finance to being a CFO. And the distinction there is leading a cross-functional team. Um, and that's something that I, I think a year ago I was really struggling with. I looked across my organization 
and it was, you know, it's HR, it's recruiting, it's IT, it's office operations, it's accounting, it's legal. And it felt like a track and field team and not like a basketball team, right? And so you're looking at your organization and you're trying to figure out how, what are the things that I need to do? What do I put in place so that my weekly meetings don't dissolve into a series of one-on-ones, right? How do I get this team to feel like they're part of a, of a bigger organization? And so what I ended up doing there is I actually did borrow um, the framework that I built as a finance team leading finance organization, but it actually translated really well into this cross-functional team. And that's a, this concept of three eyes. And the uh, first eye is integrity, second eye is influence, and third eye is individual development. And so you start out as a finance person, you're like, my numbers have to be right. Like nobody's gonna give you credit for closing the books in five days. Uh, or like doing payroll on time, right? Or passing an audit, like nobody ever congratulates anybody for doing that. But if you don't do those things well, you don't get a seat at the table. Unless you get a seat at the table, you bring clean data. Now you can influence the business direction, the business strategy. But guess what? It's very much the same for HR professionals. You're not gonna be able to coach an executive into how to, um, you know, how to structure his organization in the next step of the evolution. If you don't have compensation strategy figured out, if your performance reviews are not well-oiled machine, et cetera. And so you're building on this integrity onto influence. And then fundamentally, like, what are we here to do? Like, we're here to learn. And our whole lives are kind of, you know, steeped in learning and, and, any professional working at any organization, that transaction of I'm going to contribute to the business, but in, in, in return, I want to increase my skill set. I want to learn something. I want to become a better professional than or a human, you know, than I was when I first joined. So that is that, that commitment to learning and development is, is, uh, is a big theme, very important for across all functions, right? Whether it's accounting and they're getting their CPA certifications or HR and there's a series of certifications had there um, or, um, you know, IT. I mean, it's just, it's a, and, it, and it has become a company initiative of just doubling down on learning and development. When we return, CFO Yev Fink enters the mentoring round. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Hello, we're back with Yev Fink, and we've entered the mentoring round. We're going to ask you to look back again for us, Yev, and think back. It wasn't too long ago, I realized, that you first stepped into that CFO role. But during those very early days, could you give yourself some advice? What would it be when you think back to uh, when you first stepped into the role? What would you go back in time and give yourself some advice about? Yeah, I... I mean, I think for me, and I'm still very much in the middle of this transition, but it's knowing when to transition from a leader doer to a people leader um, as a company is growing, right? So at the beginning, the company is hiring athletes, like people who can go deep enough and have a wide range of impact. And, you know, obviously when I join, I build a financial model from scratch, right? You open that blank workbook and you get started. Um, but eventually when the company is scaling, it's inevitable that you are specializing your uh, you know, specific functions and you, you're now hiring people who can improve on what you have built initially and they're gonna go deeper. And I think I, I, I was probably late to doing that partially because of this fiscal discipline that a lot of times CFOs are, um, tend to underfund GNA as an organization, right? As they're funding the rest of the business. 
but and so I, I would say that if the transition to you feels a little bit premature, then probably it's the exact right timing to do it. Um, that's my lesson. We always like to have our guests reflect a little bit on the personal side and share uh, perhaps a personal habit or part of their daily routine that they've established for themselves that they do uh, sort of in their personal time, but it pays uh, dividends or contributes to your professional life in some way. Maybe it keeps you on an even keel. Maybe it's allows you to, uh, you know, perform optimally, whatever it might be. Anything come to mind when we ask for a personal habit or a daily routine? Yeah, mine is not daily because I have, um, I'm parenting a two-year-old and a four-year-old right now. So my my daily routines are uh, very much around uh, centric, centered around childcare. Um, I think in terms of being grounded, there are two things that come to mind. Um, one is my husband keeps me grounded. He spent the last eight years at a nonprofit organization called Homeless Prenatal Program that helps homeless families in San Francisco get into safe and stable housing. So whenever I come home with whatever I'm, you know, we're pitching to investors, whatever things are happening, and I'll talk to him and he has, you know, a woman who is eight months pregnant and they they found a home for her, but she doesn't have enough money to afford a bed. And so she's sleeping on the floor and he's trying to procure mattresses for these, these uh, low-income families. That definitely kind of puts everything that you're dealing with and what as you're selecting snacks for your organization, like that definitely puts everything in, in, in the right perspective. Um, and then uh, the second thing is just being outside and being outdoors. So before having kids, we would go backpacking a lot and 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 um, and hiking. And it's easy to do that in the Bay Area, right? It's um, everything, you know, the, the Sierras are so accessible. It's just a couple hours drive. Um, now with kids and, and the, you know, this last summer, the COVID slash wildfire summer, we basically spent every weekend day on the beach and, you know, driving up and down California coast and um, you're still outside, still a really, nature really centers you uh, like nothing else. Um, so definitely get outside if you can um, and, and enjoy God's given us. Great advice. Thank you for that. And finally, we always like to ask if you have a book you'd like to recommend to uh, future finance leaders. Anything come to mind? Doesn't have to be a business book. What would you share with us? Yeah, the the book that has guided me a lot throughout my whole life is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And I know it's a very well-read book. Um, and and it's, you know, it has so much hope and wisdom that you never stop learning from it. It's one of those books you can pick up any, at any point in life and, and um, draw such inspiration from it. It's fundamentally, it's about you know, humanity, it's about human experience. Um, and, and, you know, when I think about finance and finance leader, that's what you're here to do, right? Is to be a good person, um, to empower, empower people around you to be good people. So kind of the same themes persist. One of the, um, one of the passages in the book, and I haven't, I haven't read in a couple of years to tell you the truth, but one of the passages in the book that I keep coming back to is at the very end, and, and if you haven't read it, 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 Victor Frankl recounts his experience in a concentration camp. He was in several camps in Auschwitz, was one of them um, during World War II. And so there's it's almost at the very end of the book, and there's this rumor that goes through the, the uh, across the prisoners that, that, that you need to get on the truck because they're trading uh, the, the Jewish prisoners for German. Um, um, German soldiers. And so there's this whole push, people are trying to get on these trucks. And in reality, what was happening is like that the, the Nazis were executing the Jews. So the people who actually got on those trucks didn't make it as a result uh, prior to the liberation of the camp. And I, and he decided at that point, he said, oh, my faith has gotten me to where I am today and I don't need to do anymore. I just like, I just need to trust it. And I, I think back 
a lot to that theme of like finance leaders are always doing, we're always focused on controlling the destiny, right? What's going to happen? Can I predict the future? Um, can I can I manage the outcome in a better way? And 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 in the book, it's just about making this deliberate choice to know when to do and when to be and kind of watch things unfold. You know, you've built the team, let them let, let them create great things that they're going to create. You just pitch an investor, let them make their own decisions and ask follow-on questions. So it's this, um, you know, that that the yin and the yang of like of uh, you know just just kind of being in, at peace and 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 having confidence for where you are. Great, great choice, Cora. Thank you. We haven't had it, I think, uh, in the last few years. I don't recall it ever being mentioned. So thank you for that. Uh, and we are up to our final question where we ask you to look forward finally and share your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months. What come to mind for you? What are those priorities? So we're, we've just closed our Series D. That means that we're hiring. Uh, and so building a strong, diverse, well-connected team is definitely number one priority uh, for us. And that that is the foundation for are like next two pillars, which are essentially top line growth and EBITDA, right? Profitability. So we, um, the, the top line growth means growing our core business, bringing new product, products to market so that we can expand on our opportunity. The, uh, the EBITDA is about, you know, our ability to control our own destiny, right? So what does it mean? It's always been my uh, goal to build a successful business. What is the profitability is very much at the core of a successful business. You um, you are basically being able to serve the customers with a great product. You uh, are creating wealth for your investors, hopefully creating wealth for your employees, and also creating uh, an environment that's a fulfilling place to work, right? And that's basically at the very core what I think a successful business Yevgenia Fink, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks for having me, Jack. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.